welcome to the Your Pastor Reads Books podcast, a podcast for Christians of all stripes where you'll hear ministers discuss their love of reading and the specific books that are shaping them to be wholehearted followers of Jesus and better givers of spiritual care to others. I'm your host, Heather Weber, and I hope you enjoy our first season of conversations with ministers about the books that they read. Today, my guest is pastor and church planter, Cassie Farron. Cassie grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio with parents who church planted. Knowing that she was called into ministry from a young age, she moved to Springfield, Missouri to pursue a BA at Evangel University and then an MA in communications from Missouri State. Cassie married her husband, Alex, in 2017. Currently, she's a lead pastor at Midtown KC Church, the church she and her husband planted and both lead together. Additionally, she teaches public speaking at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Recently, she started a local network of women pastors called Women Ministers in KC. She has a passion to mentor and train young female ministers and see both men and women walking side by side leading the church into the next century. In the podcast today, Cassie talks about the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson and the ways in which her eyes have been opened to the injustice of the United States criminal justice system. She and her husband Alex have taken this knowledge and championed their congregation to draw near to the poor, oppressed, and marginalized because that's what Jesus calls us to. I hope you're inspired by our conversation. Cassie, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm so glad you're here. So you are a fellow church planter and you guys are pastoring in Kansas City, Midtown Kansas City. Yes. What, where are you at in the church planting journey? Yeah. So we, crazily enough, we have been planning to move to Kansas City and plant Midtown uh, all the way back in 2019. And so when the pandemic happened, um, you know, we like prayed and fasted and we still like really clearly felt like we were supposed to move here and do this. So I don't know what possessed us, but we <laughs> decided to quit our full-time jobs in uh, the summer of 2020 and move to Kansas City to plant Midtown. And so uh, we basically did the whole work of what, you know, we call pre-launch phase in the church planting world uh, from the moment we moved to Kansas City to the fall of 2021. And that's when we officially launched uh, Midtown Church, September 19th, 2021. Wow. So we've been open a little over a year now. Wow. Wow. Been incredible. What, so what, what did pre-launch phase look like for you guys to get you to opening? Cause I think a lot of people have a different type of pre-launch phase, maybe than what you guys did. Yeah. uh, You know, we, even prior to COVID happening, we were really captivated by what um, the underground was doing in Tampa, Florida, Tampa Mm -hmm. underground. Uh, And then, you know, just, I really do feel like this is divine uh, in a sense, 
Kansas City uh, started what's called Kansas City Underground, Mm -hmm. which is the first time that the underground had ever been any other place outside of Tampa. And if listeners don't know, uh, Tampa Underground, Kansas City Underground, it's all about what's called a micro church movement, Mm -hmm. uh, which really believes that we can empower everyday people to bring the gospel to those around them and to pastor people around them. And so we were really captivated by this like idea of micro church in 2018, 2019, and had plans to actually launch Midtown using a micro church model where our pre-launch phase, instead of like working to gather like a lot of people, uh, instead we would work to begin gathering in micro churches prior mm-hmm. to launch and start several micro churches before mm-hmm. you launch the church. And then COVID happened and it was like, a miracle to a certain Mm. extent um, that Jesus had been leading us in that journey, because although we did have to pivot a little bit, um, so much of what we had planned, we got to keep. And so we started out, uh, we launched our first microchurch in October of mm-hmm. 2020, uh, because of COVID, uh, it actually forced us to multiply because we were trying to have groups of no larger than 10. So we quickly multiplied into two mm-hmm. groups that fall. We started another one in January and then another one in April, May of that time. And then wow. we the church in the fall. So we had started, wow. we started with the church with four micro churches and have, um, added some since. So that's, that's so cool. And, and as you say, it's just perfect because you couldn't gather a large group for quite a while or no. people weren't interested in gathering as yeah. a large group. So, um, perfect timing. What is your favorite part of ministry right now? You know, I, in addition to like really being captivated by that micro church model, we were captivated by the idea of like gospel hospitality. Um, and so there's this awesome book. We're not talking about it today, but there's this <laughs> great book called the gospel comes with a house key. Uh, and it's all about what it looks like to actually bring the gospel to people through your home. And so we, mm-hmm. even though we actually still live in an apartment, we're praying, believing and planning for a house in <laughs> 2020, like the end fall of 2023. That's what we're believing for uh, stereotypical millennials over here that don't have a home. But um, <laughs> even in our 950 square foot apartment, we're constantly hosting people. Mm. Uh, and that's probably one of my favorite parts of ministry. You know, I, even though um, I'm a female pastor, I have a lot of like leadership uh, speaking strengths. I love cooking and I love baking and my husband wow. loves you. And so we love cooking for people. We oh, love um, bringing people in our home. And genuinely, that's probably one of my favorite parts of ministry. Like those conversations and those moments that you have centered around a dinner table mm-hmm. in somebody's living room. Um, I have had just had more meaningful conversations and seen like more light bulb moments and transformations happen in that context than maybe even on a Sunday morning. So that's probably my favorite part of ministry right now. That's so cool. You know, when I started out in ministry, like I didn't necessarily know how powerful what you're calling gospel hospitality is. And I, you know, I was part of a growing, developing church and I was very like involved in like the the mechanics of growing programs and things like that. And I was a mom of young kids. And so, and my husband was not in ministry with me. And so it wasn't until much later that I was like, oh my gosh, we having people over is like being hospitable to people is like the secret sauce of ministry. And just, just last Friday, we had like some former city churchers um, and we were kind of joking, like we had a millennial and a Gen Z and a couple of Gen <laughs> Xers around the table. And we were talking about, you know, atonement theories and, 
and uh, social justice and Elon Musk oh, for yeah. whatever reason. But yeah. Uh, so I love that you guys both love cooking. That makes it a lot easier and more fun. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like had, because of some health stuff, I actually had to go gluten-free and dairy-free mm. a couple years ago. And it's so interesting when you are forced to cook with very little ingredients, you learn to like actually have to cook well. Yeah. And so it's been like really fun, just like experimentation hobby, even for my husband and I together, something that we love to do. And so, mm. yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Cassie, I, I think you are a very smart woman <laughs> and an amazing communicator. Um, I'm just saying that for people who don't know you and you're also a reader. And so I'd love to know, like, how did you become a reader? Like, what does your reading life look like these days? Yeah. So it, probably would surprise most people to know that know me now that I actually really struggled with reading and I was really behind in reading when I was in elementary school, actually oh. I hated doing it. I didn't like even want to get better at it. And I was not very good at it. And at one point I was pretty young for my grade. And I think there was even some conversations with my mom and the teacher about maybe like, you know, let's give her another year. Uh, mm. and in third grade, I stumbled on the Chronicles of Narnia mm. and my eight-year-old self just like fell in love with the Chronicles of Narnia. And within like a year, I had read every single one of them. Uh, and, you know, in like talking with my parents now, I genuinely think I could not stand the like boring little books that were yeah. being given to me yeah. as a child. And I wanted something that was challenging and engaging and imaginative. And so C.S. Lewis really like created my love for reading. And ever since then, you know, my parents would find me like eight, nine, 10. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm under the covers with a flashlight, like that scene from Harry Potter, you know, uh -huh. I mean, that was me, you know, as a little kid. Uh, and I just, I loved it so much. That's what I'd spend my summers doing was reading. Uh, wow. And that was good because I went on to get my master's in communications and you have to read a lot for that. Yeah. Um, and then I, you know, obviously I pastor now and personally really feel like an integral part of pastoring is reading. So mm, why uh, tell me why that is. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the times people want to know like the secret sauce to understanding the Bible or like think that you've got to go get, uh, you know, Bible degree, which let me just say Bible degrees are incredible. Like I, I got a degree from, um, a Bible school. Uh, I, I think it's amazing. I want to go get a master's, uh, probably in divinity eventually one day, but, um, not everybody can do that. Yeah. Uh, or are they able to do that? And when it comes to like the day to days of pastoring and sermon prep, like I'm only as smart as the people that I read. Mm. And so people all the time, you know, they're asking me like, you know, as a pastor, you just like get how to read the Bible and know what it says. I'm like, actually, mm. no, I just read a lot of people that are way smarter than me <laughs> and you could do it too. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. I'll send you three books to go do that and you'll have a blast and you'll feel like you have the secret sauce now. Uh, so yeah, I, I think, uh, especially when it comes to sermon prep, uh, I think if you read people that are a whole lot smarter than you, then you're going to sound mm -hmm. a whole lot smarter than you are. Um, and you're yeah. going to have basically like the, I don't know, fathers, a mother's heroes of the faith, like with yeah. you in your sermon yeah. you know, as you're exegeting the scriptures. And that's a powerful thought to me. It is so powerful. And what you're saying too, just reminds me that scripture, like even Jewish scripture, the Hebrew Bible was never meant to be read in isolation. Like it was always read aloud in community. And then you had rabbis who were like, 
I think this is what it means. Well, maybe this theory works, you know, and people would just sort of like challenge each other and how they were interpreting scripture. And I think one of the dangers of like our more kind of like, I don't know if it's like the Western evangelical brand of faith is that, and especially like with all these people who are kind of like leaving the church, like there's just this sense of like, well, I can just do Jesus on my own or like, I can just do, I can just like read the Bible in isolation without community. And I think you miss so much. You miss what was intended. Yeah. We often say at our church, when you think you can do Jesus, but not the church, Jesus ends up looking exactly like you. Mm. Um, And that's the reality. Like when you do read the scriptures in isolation, and when you do have a faith that's in complete isolation, you never have anyone that's like challenging you, anyone that's ever um, even bringing a different perspective to the table. And so when you don't have that, your interpretation yeah. of scriptures and of Jesus is you. Yeah. you know? So for yeah. me, that's a white, you know, millennial woman. If that right. is, you know, all I do. So uh, right, so- you and all the millennials on Instagram would just yeah. <laughs> like exactly, exactly. Have your own own brand, right? Your own yeah. brand of faith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Cassie, uh, I'm so excited about the book that you are talking about today that has shaped you and contributed to your growth as a follower of Jesus, but also as a pastor. So will you just jump into that and tell us about uh, the book that you chose to talk about? Yeah. So a little random fact about me. Uh, You mentioned, I think in my bio, I grew up church planting and actually the first church plant we were a part of, I was probably one of five white girls. Um, It was a inner city church, predominantly black. And that was the church that I grew up in from Mm. four to about Wow. And so, uh, for me, especially when it came, it comes to the race issue, I'm always going to say like, I have more to learn. Um, and I, you know, I have never had the experience of somebody that is a minority. And so there's always going to be more that I can understand and learn, but I never grew up in a reality where I was not confronted with inequality. Like mm-hmm. I would go to church two, three, four times out of the week in the inner city, 20 minutes away from my house. And all wow. of the kids looked very different than me. And none of them had like a good family structure had like you know, any type of uh, stable financial situation, Um, many suffer from abuse. And so pretty regularly, like I'm forced to go from my suburban home where I go to a school with predominantly white, you know, people. And I go to this, this church and I see a completely different world simply because of the difference in the color of their skin. And so that has always been a reality for me. And so usually when I would read books um, like regarding race, it'd be like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with this. Like I grew up with this. That doesn't mean I don't need to be reminded, but I'm familiar. Just Mercy was different. Uh, mm-hmm. Just Mercy has probably been one of the most powerful and impactful books that I've ever read on race. Mm-hmm. I don't think I quite understood how connected race is with the justice system in America Mm. uh, until I read this book. So um, Just Mercy, just a little bit about it. Uh, It is by a man named Brian Stevenson. He is a lawyer, uh, graduated, I believe, from Harvard Law. Don't quote me on that, but I, Mm -hmm. one of the Ivy Leagues. And um, he started this incredible organization called Equal Justice Initiative. And they primarily work on behalf of those that have been wrongfully incarcerated, uh, juveniles that are tried and incarcerated as adults, 
um, all sorts of racial disparities in regards to the justice system. And as a result, he wrote this book to kind of shed light on many of those things that uh, a lot of people that look like me don't necessarily know and don't necessarily understand. Uh, primarily, the book actually follows a story with a man named Walter McMillan, uh, somebody that was put wrongfully in prison for, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, like 30 years for a crime that he did not commit. Wow. Um, because of the testimony of a racist individual. Uh, and long story short, you know, he is uh, eventually freed from prison, which is incredible because of the work of Brian Stevenson. Um, but if Brian Stevenson had not intervened, he would have died on death row. Mm. And uh, many people are familiar with this story because Brian Stevenson actually did an interview with 60 Minutes that was like pretty revolutionary about this case. Uh, and also this is the primary case that the... Uh, actual movie Just Mercy is based hmm. on. But the book itself is so much more than just uh, Walter McMillan's story or even Brian Stevenson, the author's story. Uh, it details so many stories of people who have been wrongfully incarcerated or who have experienced an unjust side of our justice system. Um, just to name a few names, because I think the names are important. Mm. Of course, Duncan, a man with intellectual disabilities who is executed anyway, as the Supreme Court did not rule on unlawfulness of that practice until June of 20, um, 2002. The execution oh. of Herbert Richardson, who experienced post-traumatic stress disorder after turning from Vietnam, which exasperated some of the issues that stem mm. from childhood abuse and caused him to do things that he knew he shouldn't have done. And as an adult, a uh, 14 year old, Charlie, 14 year old Trina and 13 year old Ian, who were all tried wow. adults wow. for crimes that they committed. And they were uh, committed to adult prisons. Uh, Charlie was repeatedly raped. Mm. Trina was raped and was actually impregnated by a corrections officer and wow. gave birth in prison. Uh, and even Ian participated in self-harm. He was put in a, um, uh, solitary confinement as a 14 year old, mm. um, Avery Jenkins, a mentally ill prisoner who spent his childhood in abusive foster homes, had cognitive impairments, suffered psychotic episodes and was on death row for murder. Um, and so although all of these stories, uh, most of these stories have somewhat happy endings, quote unquote, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it shows us the extreme injustice that exists in our society today. Uh, and this book really helps people understand uh, the equivalency of minority enslavement with our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so these stories that he details in this book, there's so many more than I just listed, uh, really help you understand the magnitude of the problem uh, and that we've got to do something about it. Wow, Cassie, I, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, wow, wow, even though I've read this book, I probably read it like <laughs> five years ago, because um, it's just powerful to be reminded of the stories yeah. and like powerful to like, just be living with an awareness of the reality of our justice system. And I'm so grateful. Like, I think one of my daughters was required to read this book uh, yeah. for English nine honors or something. And I was so grateful for that because uh, unlike you, she's not grown up, you know, she hasn't grown up going to church in the inner city and we live kind of in a very white suburb. And, um, 
And, and I do feel like once you read a book like this, you can't unread it. Like you, you do carry this knowledge with you. At least I have, like, I haven't been able to forget it. I've given copies to people. I've told people to read this book. So how has this shaped you as a follower of Jesus? Like knowing what you know now. Yeah. One, your daughter has an incredible English teacher. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that book was assigned. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it has shaped in a few ways. So, um, you know, number one at, at our church, we have some shifts. We always talk about like, these are some shifts that we have to make as a church in order to really, uh, not only renew kind of the reputation of the church in our area, but also to really show people who Jesus is. And one of those shifts for us is we have to shift from only certain people or ministries are called to serve and love the poor, oppressed, and marginalized to mm. all are called to serve the poor, oppressed, and marginalized. I think a lot of the times um, in Christian circles and even in society, it's like, oh, so-and-so do, does that in that ministry or, oh, mm. you know, these nonprofits over here, they help with that. Mm. And when I look at the scriptures, nowhere does Jesus say like, you people help with this and you people help with this. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, the poor and the marginalized, that's just the responsibility of people that feel called to it. No, over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus not only elevates the status of the poor, but like we're mandated to care for them. Mm. Um, we see in Luke chapter six, uh, Jesus say, blessed are you that are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So like the individual that's out on the street or my neighbor next door, who's low income, uh, like they're closer to the kingdom of Jesus, you know, mm. at times than I am. Yeah. Uh, in Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these you've done for me, like Jesus makes it clear that neglecting the poor is the same as neglecting God. Uh, Luke 14, the parable of that great banquet where Jesus makes it clear that the poor and the social outcasts are actually invited on like on into the table of the kingdom of God. And that we're to invite people, those types of people to mm. our table. I'm just convinced that the core of Jesus's ministry and the core of the gospel and the life that we've been called to live inevitably requires us to be close to the poor, oppressed and marginalized. Mm. And if we don't do that, I think we're missing something. Um, Brian Stevenson actually puts it this way in his book. He says the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated and the condemned. And so Alex and I personally, in our own life, um, we've become a whole lot more strategic and intentional about what it looks like to surround ourselves mm. with people that look a whole lot different than us. Um, we, you know, regularly, if we get stopped by somebody on the side of the road, like we're going to have a conversation with them. We're going to like treat them like a human being. Um, we're going to figure out, you know, if we can connect them with some resources to help, mm. uh, inevitably when someone calls the church and it's, you know, 18 degrees outside and they don't have a place to stay, we are not going to let them stay on the street in dangerously cold mm -hmm. temperatures, you know, mm -hmm. uh, when there is an issue of inequality in our city. That's something that we're going to work to address. And so I think, you know, just mercy has reminded us once again of the necessity of being in proximity uh, to people who are poor, oppressed and marginalized and of like our gospel mandate to actually be a part of that process. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that would be one really big thing for us. Yeah. Um, I've got lots more. So <laughs> 
Yeah, no, this is probably all, the central one. <laughs> it's just all so good. So like, how does that play out practically? And like, like you said, somebody might call and it's 18 degrees outside. What yeah. do you do? Like, yeah. and, and what can like the average person listening, like what kinds of things would you tell them if they were in- encountering a need like this? Yeah. So, um, first and foremost, I think it's important to like, we have to treat, um, the poor press of marginalized with dignity, even when they don't deserve it. And I say that because, like social justice itself is like thrown around as like this really sexy, awesome thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it is just not, it is not fun. It's super inconvenient. It's usually really messy, extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times the people that we help don't deserve it. Like they're really unkind to us or, mm-hmm. um, they abuse like our hospitality mm-hmm. or the that we've given them. Um, but at the same time, that does not change like their status in the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. And so um, we work to really provide like as much dignity and kindness to those around us. So that means like when someone asks to talk to you on the street, like whatever you can do mm-hmm. to like actually stand there and listen to them for mm-hmm. at least five to 10 minutes is mm-hmm. like, you know, that's could be huge for someone. Mm-hmm. Like they may have mm-hmm. not talked to somebody all day long mm-hmm. or, um, you know, we always make it a habit, especially in the wintertime. It's really cold in Kansas city. Uh, we always make it a habit of carrying, um, they're, I can't even remember what they're called, but they're like the hot hands. Yeah. Oh. Well, we actually do the foil okay. blankets. Hot hands are another really good one. Um, or gloves, extra blankets. We also, for our church, we've created a community resources page that basically lists every single nonprofit in Kansas city and specifically like what services they provide. Mm. Uh, and that's how it's categorized. So we've got little cards that have a QR code on them. And so for example, there's this, um, lady named Lisa. I don't know her last name, but there's this lady named Lisa. She likes to camp out in our Plaza district. Hmm. She's stopped me three times before. She doesn't remember that she stopped Mm -hmm. me three times before. She always has a different story. I've Mm -hmm. given her food actually once before this last time though, that she stopped us. She wanted money for her electric bill. And I, you know, my husband, we were both there and we said, Hey, here's the deal. We are, we are so, we have so many good friends that exist in the Kansas city area that help with this. So here's a card, um, use this QR code. Everybody has a cell phone nowadays. Yeah. It's true. It does not matter if you are houseless or not. Everybody has yeah. a cell phone. Here's a QR code, go to these resources, reach out to us. There's a contact. Um, we'll even help you get your electricity bill paid. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even with, uh, you know, those individuals that you might be a little bit wary of that you've helped in the past, but it hasn't really gone well, still figuring out ways Mm -hmm. to empower them and give them dignity. Um, we also are really, um, committed to the abolition of the death penalty. And we Mm -hmm. really feel like that's something, uh, that, Jesus, uh, has called us to do, uh, we take Jesus pretty literally when he says, uh, do not murder and anger is just as bad as murder. And so for us, so like, we're pretty actively involved in, um, the Missourians against the death penalty here in Kansas city and in Missouri. Uh, we actually have a guy that attends our church who works for the innocence project. He's a lawyer. Mm. Uh, and there was one particular case actually, which we kind of got our church involved with mm. this last year, uh, in regards to, to that specifically. So, wow. Wow. I, I appreciate what you're saying. And just by just naming that being close to the poor oppressed and marginalized is 
never convenient. Yeah. And it's not like the needs pop up in your free time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, uh, you know, when you have lots of extra money or resources to give away. And, you know, I remember the feeling of, because in the winter times where we were meeting for church, we would have people who would come seasonally, you know, it might be a different crowd every year. And I wanted them to come in. Like sometimes our church was the only warm place where they could get something to drink yeah. in the morning. Um, but just knowing there were always going to be interruptions, there was yeah. always going to be this potential for like other people to feel super uncomfortable or for someone to be inappropriate, you know, just yeah. straight up inappropriate. Um, we had one woman like getting up and like, you know, she probably had schizophrenia and she yeah. was talking out loud and she was running the microwave. Like it was just in the yeah. middle of the sermon, you know, but, but just knowing like, uh, that is being close to God, right? Like when we yeah. can be close yeah. to, to, to those in those situations. And I also think too, like, like the privilege that I have, and maybe you relate to this, um, it gives me the choice about who to, um, be in proximity to. Mm-hmm. And, um, like I've, you know, made some income being a substitute teacher. And mm-hmm. I know I can go to the high school that's closest to me And it's got a a large population of like upper middle class, Mm -hmm. mostly white kids um, who don't have as much like, you know, like food insecurity or home insecurity. And because of that, there are fewer behavioral issues. Right. And, and I know that like, it's going to be a fairly stress-free day, depending on what class I pick, you know? Um, but then I was approached about doing a long-term sub job for a music teacher who travels to like six different schools for like little, like elementary school kids. And as I was debating it, like, oh, do I do this? I don't, I don't know. And, um, I really felt like the Lord was reminding me that, you know, when you give a cup of water to a child, um, it's like doing it for him. It's giving him a cup. And, and just knowing that like this, this teacher, I left this part out, but this teacher had said, honestly, what they really need is someone to care for them while I'm on maternity leave, because it's the one, one or two moments in their day where they're like one-on-one or one-on-two with an adult. And, um, and a lot of these kids come from resource insecure, homes they come from abuse like one girl's father was shot this summer that's a lot to carry like as a teacher to put yourself in proximity to all of the need but I said my yes because I felt like the Lord was reminding me of just what you're talking about and as stressful as it might be running to six different schools and figuring this all out during the week I just like have to remember like that's why like that's why I I I'm giving my yes. And it's not so that I can necessarily advance all these kids to the next level, you know, (laughs) on their instruments. Um, But it's like truly to provide like the peace of Christ and the care of Christ in those moments. So how, how has your church responded to this? I mean, and before you answer, I will say that I know as a church planter, you set the culture of the church before there's any, there's anything yeah. people can like resist. And yeah. so I know that you can kind of do it 
how you want. Mm -hmm. And if people don't like it, they just don't come. Exactly. So, it's great. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing. I love it. Um, it's the, it's one of the great things about being a church planter because there's nobody who's been there for 40 years who's saying we've always done it this way and it can't be done a new way. So right. how, how has the response been in your community and your congregation? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we actually, I'm glad you asked this question because you were mentioning, you know, what do you do when someone comes in and, mm -hmm. you know, we actually pretty early on discovered that the best way for us to welcome people and host people well is when we had somebody come into the church that you like, you can obviously tell, you know, they are struggling, whether that's yeah. with helplessness or, you know, being able to bathe regularly or, or mental health. Yeah. All of the things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually, all of our leadership team knows you are fair game to be grabbed, mm. to, um, be like that person's buddy mm. all day. Mm -hmm. And for us, like it does a variety of things. One, it makes sure that that person feels like loved and cared for that they're mm. listened to. It's not like a body car guard. It's mm. like, um, you know, I I'm getting to meet a friend. Mm. Uh, who like actually wants to talk to me that's not like afraid of me or is going to ignore me. Uh, the other thing it does too, is I know generally pastors have concerns about like their kids, right? The kids mm. that are in the church yeah. and safety. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing is that it does is it kind of removes some of those fears yeah. for even me as a pastor. Cause I'm like, so-and-so is with them. Like, they're going to make sure everybody's fine. Like yeah. nobody's going to be hurt. That's nobody's good going to be harmed. Um, so it removes a lot of that for, for us as well. Uh, and then we are always, 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 our first point of attack is going to be, how can we partner you with somebody that already exists in this community, mm. uh, a nonprofit that exists in this community or a government resource that exists in this community to help you? Because mm -hmm. I think we kid ourselves as pastors when we think like we can be the best social worker or yeah. be the, the best, you know, counselor or whatever that is. And there are so many incredible nonprofits in Kansas city that do it so much better than mm -hmm. we do. And so it's always going to be the first line of defense. And when that fails, cause sometimes it does when that fails, that's when we figure out how we can help step in and, and do what we need to do to help. That yeah. Person. So that's one way that we've kind of dealt with it, even just like on a Sunday morning type of mm -hmm. basis. Um, you know, I will say this though, although you know, the millennial and the Gen Z generation, they wave the banner of social justice and they post the black squares on social media. Very few actually put feet to that call. And it is one of our biggest challenges as pastors and as a church to say, I'm so glad you care about that. Now show me you do. Um, because it only goes so far. And if you are willing to put a black square up on your Instagram, but you are unwilling to get to know your low income neighbor who may need help with groceries that month, then something wrong like has yeah. happened. Like we yeah. have a really big, not just ideological a chasm, but like a faith mm -hmm. chasm, um, mm -hmm. because we are people that are called to actively like live out gospel, not just know it. And so, yeah. you know, that is something that we really do have to consistently challenge our people with as a church. That's why it's one of those shifts for us. Like you have that mandate. Uh, and we do that through a variety of ways. We do a, a monthly serve event, which is with a local nonprofit. So mm -hmm. every single month we serve with a local nonprofit. The one that we most frequently serve with is a actually a nonprofit that helps provide resources and housing mm 
to hmm. Congolese refugees that get centered mm-hmm. here in the city. And that's been huge for our people on the race issue, on wow. the culture issue, on wow. the like poverty spectrum, mm. all of that. Um, cause you, we work alongside many of the refugees as we're also like helping to reno a house or sure. whatever. Sure. Um, so that's been a great way of kind of helping people. Cause they, the first step is just proximity. Like you've got yeah. to force somebody out of their comfort zone, um, to be in a, un- it's uncomfortable. Like there is no, we always tell people like, serve days are incredible, but like, they're going to be uncomfortable, especially Mm -hmm. when you first start, like it is going to, you're going to have a hard time understanding what someone's saying because English is not their primary language. Mm -hmm. Like somebody is going to smell really bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the Mm -hmm. workday itself might be really hard. Like Mm -hmm. the house that we, they may buy to redo, like there may be a drag addict next door and yeah. really could be full of mold. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. so the first step is proximity. And I think so many of our people have taken that first step and it's cool when you see individuals have aha moments, mm-hmm. um, when they're just forced to get into a different neighborhood, you know, yeah. they're forced to meet somebody that looks and sounds a whole lot different than they are. Um, so that's some of the things that we've done. And then we really, even the context of our micro churches, encourage like that missional aspect. And this is something that we're actually working to unveil this year, this coming year. Um, there's this great organization called care portal it's national. And so, uh, anybody that's listening to this podcast, if you live in a midsize or large city, you should be able to have access to it. Um, it's an organization that works with local DF, S, uh, so children's services hmm. uh, and schools, different things like that to connect um, their needs with local churches and wow. for-profit organizations. And what's super cool about what Care Portal is doing is they have gotten a whole lot of for-profit partners that are willing to provide the funds and then the churches get to act as the connector. So hmm. we get to take funds uh, to meet needs for families. Wow experiencing food insecurity. They're in the foster care system that are in threat of being in the foster care system. We get to take the money, provide the need, and then actually like bring that need to them and their relationship. And so what we're working to do in the context of our micro churches next year is actually have like a community appointed person in each micro church that consistently every month uh, works to, with the micro church to meet, you know, one to four needs in our community. And so that's another way that we're working to kind of help people step out of their comfort zone um, and really engage those that are poor, marginalized. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I love that you normalize for your congregation what serving will actually feel like. You know what I mean? Or like how how uncomfortable it might be. Because like, I don't know that I've ever been part of an organization before serving where the leader was like, by the way, guys you might feel really awkward and want to go home, like in the middle of this, right? Or you may not be able to relate at all. Like people may not be friendly to you, you know? I think the the closest, like I, well, I just think about like even mission trips, which is a whole other topic in itself. Like a lot of times there's sort of like a glamour, like a, a sort of like sexy veneer to like raising the money to going on a mission trip and you're gonna go, do some good thing somewhere else, you know, in a third world country. And, and I don't know that you hear very often, Hey, you're probably going to be out of your element. Yeah. You know, like this is probably going to be uncomfortable for you. 
Um, it's not, you're not going to be a tourist. You know what I mean? Correct. And I so appreciate that you do that for people. And just even for the people listening to think, okay, this thing that Jesus is asking us to do, we should expect it to be hard. Yeah. And I mean, you hear like those success stories all the time of like, you know, somebody walked in my church and they were on drugs and God radically changed their life. Like we've actually had that happen. Mm. Like that has happened. But the thing that usually happens is somebody walks into our church, they need something from us for them and we never see them again. And that I that is what Jesus called us to do to like give as if it were him and never expect anything in return. Mm. And that is more often what this is going to look like than that radical, miraculous experience. Yes. Um, it just is. And I wish that was different. I wish yeah. everyone would be radically transformed, yeah. by Jesus, you know, in a 30 minute, 45 minute sermon, whatever. But Um, and you know, it just doesn't happen that way, but that is still exactly what Jesus called us to do. Like to, to actually give without expecting people to come to our Mm -hmm. church, like without Mm -hmm. expecting them to handle it well, without expecting them to say, thank you, without expecting them to even be nice to us. Like, I can't tell you how many rude people I have helped clothe and feed just, Mm. I I can't like so many and (laughs) It's just true, you know, and here's the thing, like, and, and, you know, this is really why just mercy is so powerful in society. Um, you know, we tend to persecute those that were persecuted themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, almost every single individual in prison at some point in time experienced like poverty, food insecurity, abuse, most abuse, foster care system, Mm -hmm. neglect. the statistics are like, out of this world. And so we tend to turn around and like persecute the same people. And the reality is, is most people that I will help life has never been kind to them. So why would they be kind to me? And it's just that like constant reminder of like the incredible blessing and privilege that I've been given, um, prayers that that individual would like for the very first time experience the mm. kindness of this world and the kindness mm. and the love of Jesus Christ. Mm. And then like, give them the grace that they don't know how to do that. Like that yeah. has not given them the opportunity to understand what that looks like. And right. so that's like, that's it right there. I mean, that is, um, benevolence ministry. <laughs> right. Right. And so I'm assuming this has happened to you, but like, have you been conned before? And I kind of like use con in quotation marks and, and like, what's your attitude toward that after you realize like sort of after you, like, there was a point with a gentleman who was coming where I was like, I've got your number now. I know what you're up to. Um, how do you, and how would you encourage people to navigate that? I, I think what you said stands about still showing the kindness of God. Like these are people who maybe have not experienced that in this world. Um, how do you respond to that when like, it's clear that, you know, you've been quote unquote swindled or somebody's lied to you about their story? Yeah. I, I think first, I just want to say there's no right or wrong way of doing this. Mm. Um, there's like a, actually a whole lot of opinions out there as mm. to like what to do, what this looks like, even within like secular or, you know, faith circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, what I'm going to say is like not gospel. Sure. And 
definitely not an expert. And I feel like every day in the helping industry, you're just trying to fig- like figure it out. Yeah. Every yeah. New. Um, and some people are going to be a bit more like conservative with this and some are going to be a bit more like free. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it helps. Alex is always my husband. Who's also my co-pastor. He's always going to give somebody the benefit of the, de- mm-hmm. of the doubt. And I am always going to be the suspicious one. Mm. Like that is just how we are wired. And I'm actually extremely grateful for it because it creates pretty beautiful balance mm. for us, but it's also led to like some disagreement. Mm. Um, like, I don't think we should give so-and-so this, and I mm-hmm. think we should. Uh, and just knowing that like, really when it comes down to it, we have to trust the spirit to lead us, especially yeah. when it comes to these types of things. Like I can't tell you how many times I've looked at Alex and I've said, I don't agree, but I also like trust that the spirit's leading you. And so if you feel led to do this, I just want you to do it. And I think there is somewhat of that attitude that we all have to take when it comes to helping people, especially in like our society where yes, drugs run so rampant, you know, alcohol abuse runs so rampant. Uh, and all sorts of other things run so rampant, uh, really trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to be speaking to us. And yeah. in those people we don't know, like going to Jesus and saying, like, I'm not sure what to do with this. Help mm. me. Figure this out. So I do, that is like extremely important piece to me. Sure. Practically speaking, you know, there is this, another great book. Um, and actually I'm not going to remember, oh shoot. I'm not going to remember the name of it now. Uh, it, they did a movie on it a while back and it was, it's like the other side of the tracks. So I can't remember. It's about this um, African-American man and this white man who have this, oh, the same kind of different as me. That's okay. What it's yeah. I yes. They end up having this um, like happenstance, incredible relationship could not be two uh, different people. And this book mm. basically chrono like chronologically lays out his story, the white man and this black man, it like alternates every chapter until mm. their stories converge. And mm. one thing that this um, black man who was houseless for a very long time talks about uh, is how sometimes the greatest kindness he received is when someone gave him money and he was able to buy alcohol to keep him warm at night. Mm. And wow. I so because long story short, he's now believes in Jesus and he runs this nonprofit with mm. his friend. So he has that kind of perspective. But mm-hmm. that really convicted me. Um, that is like a, a kind of a key turning point for me and some of my like understanding regarding those topics. That being said, like I, I'm still gonna be like the suspicious one. So I'm not just gonna be going around like handing out fifty dollar bills. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, on a regular <laughs> basis. That's not like what I'm gonna be doing. But you know, if I have four dollars yeah. in my yeah. car and I pull up to a stop, which is rare, but let's say I do and I pull up mm-hmm. to a stop, like I'm gonna give the guy four dollars. Sure. Yeah. Um, when it comes to people, a lot of the times people will come to us specifically with needs nowadays. Mm-hmm. And particularly the biggest one, and this is something that we're facing in the in the city of Kansas City and in the state of Missouri broadly, is money for hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. So Fun fact, there are only two emergency overnight shelters in Kansas City, and they usually are all booked by sometimes as early as 10 o'clock in the morning for that day. And sometimes you get lucky if you call before three o'clock. And so it's really hard because basically, especially in the wintertime, we're confronted with, do we let this individual potentially die? 
Mm. like overnight on the side of the road? Um, or do we provide a hotel room for them? Mm. And hotel rooms are a nightmare. They are like the biggest <laughs> liability. Right. Any nonprofit, right. ask right. any yes. church agency, they will complain. I know about, about this. Yeah. Yes. It mm-hmm. is a huge problem. And actually some advocates are working to kind of lobby like the, the government right now to work through some solutions. That's probably been one of the bigger pain points for us because here, mm. like inevitably what will happen is someone will smoke in a room and you will have to pay for a smoking charge. Right. And that I cannot tell you how infuriating (laughs) that is, Uh, but it's happened to us before. And so, you know, when that does happen, a great example, we had a man, this happened, he called, we decided we would go ahead and, and do a hotel night. There was all the, the shelters were booked. It was supposed to be like, I think that night it was supposed to be down into the single digits. And so booked him a hotel room and he smoked up the hotel room. And the next morning, Alex goes in to pay for it. And they're like, this is a, an extra $250 charge. Wow. This. And wow. the guy, you know, he denies that he did it, all this stuff. Mm. Alex he comes, gets in the car with Alex and Alex is headed to go drop him off um, somewhere that he wanted to be dropped off. And he's like, Hey, so can you go and get like, can we go get my medication? And Alex is like, I'm sorry, you just spent your medication money on like the smoking oh. room. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's what we've got. Like wow. that's the situation we're in at this point. Yeah. And you know, I was kind of upset. Like he wasn't super happy that that was Alex's answer, mm-hmm. but you know, there does come a point where you have to start helping people understand, you know, some of the consequences of their actions mm-hmm. and you yourself like have to have like a- enough dignity and even integrity as a steward of not mm-hmm. a nonprofit with funds mm-hmm. that people have generously given. Yeah. They like, Hey, we would have loved to do this for you, but here's where we're at now because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, you know, working yeah. to have those really candid conversations with people and like help them understand, you know, we, we love you. We care for you, but this is, we're a nonprofit organization. We use this line all the time. We're a nonprofit organization. People give generously to this like organization. There's only a certain amount of money that we can donate every single month to these types of things. Right. And we've run out, you know, even yeah. saying things like that. Um, I, people understand, you know, they get it. And if they don't, you know, there's only so much you can do and you, yep. you trust that like you did the best to feed and clothe them and Jesus is going to take care of the rest. So I think I may have gone on and on, but oh, that's okay, <laughs> Cassie. A few practical things. Yeah. This has been an amazing conversation. I feel like you've given uh, listeners just a lot to think about in terms of how they can be close to the poor, oppressed, and marginalized as individuals, but also like for ministry leaders, how to think maybe a little bit differently about the, the role of the church in meeting some of these needs and drawing close to people. Yeah, absolutely. So I so appreciate you being here. Oh, of course. It's been such a pleasure. Heather, you are such a dear friend. And so I uh, loved getting to do this today. Thanks for joining my conversation with Pastor Cassie Farron and this episode of Your Pastor Reads Books. Check out our show notes for links to the books and articles we mentioned. And if you want to support the podcast in spirit or with your bank account, you can subscribe to yprb.substack.com. That's yprb.substack.com. Or for more information about me, my coaching services, and other creative projects I'm working on, you can click around on my website at heatherweber.org. That's Weber with one B. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy a good book today.